Sergio, if you like what we're doing here, if you support the show and you want to give support to the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash let's talk native. And if you do so, we'll provide you some exclusive content and some things that uh, others aren't going to get when you get it. So support us by going to Patreon. Yahweh. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Talk Native. I am John Kane, and uh, thanks for joining me. All right, I... I know everybody got really excited about the inauguration. I say everybody. I know. I mean Americans, but lots of people did, including Native people. And among the things that I heard a lot of was a lot of bitching that there was no Native people involved in the inauguration. I mean, even the uh, the poet who um, uh, Amanda Gorman, who who did you know uh, recited a poem uh, for the crowd there. There was a lot of people griping that it wasn't Joy Harjo or that she wasn't included, too, because she's a U.S. Poet Laureate and she's Native and all that. You know, I, I don't share that sentiment. You know, as far as I'm concerned, look, let Americans praise and, and celebrate and perform for their leader, not our leader. I know this is kind of a recurring theme for me here, but... Yeah, I, one of the reasons that I get soured on this idea that somehow we that like they owe us or we we are entitled to be a part of these American celebrations is is history and and I go back to the one that bugs me the most and that's Geronimo being paraded out for Theodore Roosevelt's second inauguration. His first inauguration was actually in Buffalo, thirty miles from here, because. He became president due to an assassination of uh, uh, William McKinley. But once he ran again and, and won the, the office of the presidency and had his inauguration, and they went over the top. I mean, it was, for the time, it was the most extravagant inauguration that uh, in American history to that date. And among the things that they did was they, <laughs> they took Geronimo out of prison put him on horseback, dressed him all up, and paraded him out as, as a part of this procession for the inauguration of Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt was, by almost all accounts, a devoted white supremacist. He spoke very ill. I mean, one of his quotes, and I, I guess I should have looked it up so I'm not just paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect that, um, that he didn't subscribe to the notion that the only good Indian was a dead Indian, but he suspected that 9 out of 10 were. And he wouldn't want to look at, uh, inspect too closely the, uh, the tent. So this is a, isn't a guy who, like, had some sort of, you know, worship towards Native people. And, and there's, there's always this weird relationship that, that Americans, the average American, but certainly, you know, 
many Americans anyway, have towards Native people. It's like, yeah, they like, love the idea of Native people. They just don't like like Native people. And and this, and this this obviously is somewhat demonstrated by Theodore Roosevelt wanting Geronimo and a few other chiefs, by the way. It wasn't just Geronimo. But I mean, Geronimo was in prison. And the only time he was ever released from prison or let out of the, you know, imprisonment from, you know, from Fort Sill was to either do um, World's Fairs, uh, World's Fair appearances, and I guess he did at least a couple of them, or they parade him out for Wild West shows. So, I mean, he was treated as this trophy that would be put on display for, for Americans. I mean, look, he wasn't being hoisted up for native people. I mean, let's not make any mistake about that. So when I, and I've known this for most of my life that, that Geronimo was used this way. And, and let's be clear, he was in prison. So I'm not suggesting that he wasn't a willing participant to be exploited in this way, because frankly, it was probably the only change of scenery he ever got. I mean, he wasn't locked up necessarily behind bars, but he was definitely imprisoned um, at out near Fort Sill for for the final fourteen years of his life. He died imprisoned. So when I hear people complaining, you know, bitching and moaning about uh, about Native people not being included in the inauguration, all the only image I can conjure up is uh, is is Geronimo being paraded out, and in a way, look, they broke him, and. He had very little options left in his life once he was imprisoned. And I, I, I can't begrudge him for, you know, for either, you know, going, you know, putting on a show at World's Fairs or the Wild West show or for Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, unless you've been locked up for a significant period of time and you have to start deciding, you know, what it is, you know, what pieces of freedom you can grab onto, even if they're very controlled. I'm Look, I'm not judging uh, Geronimo, but it's a testament to what they did to Geronimo and to put him in that situation where the only taste of freedom came when he was being put on display for white people. And, and look, don't anybody get pissed off because I just said white people again. It was all for white people. In, in, in 1905, they weren't doing inauguration parades for black people. They weren't doing it for to demonstrate the United States diversity in terms of their uh, their citizenry. Not at all. This was all for white people. So even to the extent that they would bring out somebody like a Geronimo or some native, some chief, it was for them. It, it, it was for white people. It wasn't for for native people. It's, it's not like there were native people that you know were congregating as part of the the audience here. So again, so when I hear some of these complaints about the inauguration. I never watched it. I didn't watch any of it. I, I will admit because, you know, I saw so many people raving about the, the, po the poem that uh, Amanda Gorman um, recited. I went back and listened to it. And uh, look, it was, it was like so much of everything else that I heard about. <clears throat> people singing, this land is your land. This land is my land or whatever the hell the song is. Um, you know, singing the national anthem, Lady Gaga, J-Lo. And then this one singing, you know, doing this poem on, on you know, all the hopes and this renewal for, the, for America with, with, with the oldest elected president in the history of the United States. Somehow, Joe Biden and renewal, doesn't quite work for me, but <clears throat> I get it. That That's what people are excited about after four years of Trump. Some people are excited about. <clears throat> not everybody. You know, just to be clear, not everybody. So, 
this is what we this is what was put on display for this inauguration. And of course the inauguration was was different because not just of COVID-19, but the the uh, attacks and the riots that took place at the Capitol, you know, just a little more than a week before that. So it was not at all the way inaugurations. It wasn't Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration. And I had no problem with, with there being no native representation there. I don't know, maybe Deb Halland was there, but I don't think they put her up to the microphone at all. But you know, when I hear our people get obsessed over this stuff, it's like, don't you get it? I mean, don't you, I, I got to think, look, I got to think that, that there were native people that were extremely disappointed that Geronimo had been, had been broken essentially. And, and that he was being used in this way uh, for parades and, you know, for, for, again, for, for entertaining white people. I know when we look back at it now, we, we think it's really inappropriate, but you would think, we that same level of concern and you know and frankly anger about what they did to Geronimo would apply now but now we say no no we're we're not Geronimo you know we're we're Joy Harjo we're you know we're you know we should we should be a part of this and i just i just don't see it that way and and i know there are people who are going to listen to the show who aren't necessarily going to agree with me but but I think this is really where we have to think about what we're saying and 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 put it into context. I mean, because the reality is that their election isn't about us. And I know there's all this talk about how diverse Joe Biden's cabinet is. And there's a certain amount of tokenism that comes along with that. Not necessarily, you know, this, you know, building this whole cabinet of rivals or whatever else. None of those people are his rivals. I mean, even even the, some of the ones who, who may have, you know, like Buttigieg, who ran against him in the primaries for the, you know, for the, the, the Democratic nomination. Look, they're all singing the same tune here. And, you know, so the concern that I have as there's all this conversation about how diverse his cabinet is and how diverse his administration is. Is it just for optics? I mean, I and I, you know, so I had this question as it relates to Deb Deb Haaland, but but all of the others. Look, they, they, there's a transgender person. There's uh, there's black people. There's there's Hispanic people. There's uh, Asian people. There's a, a native people. Look, it is it is very diverse on its on its surface. But I do believe that for those people who reach that level of uh, of advancement in the party system where where their culture you know or their ancestry is starts to drop to the bottom you know look whether they're christian whether they are military whether they are um i don't know whether whether they're democrats or republicans these things become clearly americans and all of the people who were complaining that that we didn't have an appearance at the inauguration those are the very people who are probably among the most assimilated and most americanized the, the fact that they think that we have to be a part of that and and i understand it i i get it i understand that that's that's where we're at look they they, they spent hundreds of years conditioning us to to feel like we are a part of this stuff i mean and it it doesn't take hundreds of years I mean, Geronimo was in prison for, you know, for 14 years of his uh, late in his life. He died when he was 79 years old. And 
in the time that he was in prison. And frankly, not just the time that he was in prison, even, even his, uh, his conflicts with the United States were probably already shaping where he would be uh, later in his life. But later in his life, he adopted some of their, their cultural ways. <clears throat> I think he became a Christian. He, um, he was obviously willing to, to put himself on display. And even as we look at that and, and find that somewhat troubling, I'm equally troubled by the people who think we need to be put on display today. Look, I don't, you know, to have Joy Harjo, who is a very talented poet, he recognized by the United States as their U.S. Poet Laureate, I think twice. I don't know how that works exactly. But yeah, it's, I, I get it, but I don't need her or any native voice to put on a performance for, for Joe Biden or the American public to talk about, you know, love and peace and unity. Look, there's a meme I, that I've shared before. Everybody loves the native person who talks about love and peace and unity and spirituality and maybe, some, you know, dangle some jewelry and, and wear the whip, ribbon dress and, you know, and dance for, you know, and, you know, dance for white people. They all love that. They don't necessarily love the, those of us who are, who are trying to stop a pipeline or standing with Black Lives Matter, or talking about genocide, you know, or residential schools, or slavery. No, they don't, they don't want to hear that from us. So, look, if Joy Harjo was going to do a poem, I would have hoped it would have, if she was going to, it wouldn't have been what the, all those people there would have wanted to hear. It should have been a poem about adversity, about racism. You know, and I'm not condemning uh, Amanda Gorman. She addressed it in her, in her poem. But but she kept addressing it with this with this idea of hope and 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 I get it. But for me as a native person, you, the reason I got offended when when Barack Obama stood up and said you know, that it was his mission to make sure that native people had a a fair opportunity for the American dream, I found that offensive. And now I know there's a whole lot of native people saying, yeah yeah we want the American dream too. That American dream is what they did to us. That's part of the manifest destiny. That's part of the genocide, part of the oppression. So no, I don't want the American dream. I want to be able to keep it at bay. That's what I want. So I don't need somebody with skin like mine or darker than mine. Somebody, some, I don't need a native face you know, performing in the midst of some American celebration about unity and hope and all this other stuff. Uh, you know, ignoring what the real, what the history is and not continuing to confront the history. I mean, this is, uh, to me, this is all part of the, part of the problem that, that we, we have allowed ourselves to, to be complicit in our own assimilation. Even if we don't fully embrace it, we don't confront it. You know, it's not unlike, you know, the, this, the notion that you are either racist or anti-racist. Because it's not enough to say that you're not racist. Well, it's not enough to say that you're not assimilated. Because if you're not fighting assimilation, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, you know, uh, that assimilation spectrum, if you're not fighting and pushing back on it, then you're complicit with it. So, you know, just like racism, you're either racist or you're anti-racist. Well, you're either assimilated or you're, or you're fighting back against assimilation. And because if you're not fighting back, then you're going along. So that may not have been said before, <laughs> but I'm saying it now. This is the attitude that we have to have. Now, I don't mean we have to hate people. 
I'm not saying that we have to, you know, you know, speak out in ways that seem violent or, or anything else. There are times that we have to. I, I think to defend ourselves and to stand up for who we are, I think we have to do more than just, you know, uh, promote ourselves as, as spiritual beings, you know, praying for peace. Man, I heard so much of that during Standing Rock. How, how oh, yeah, they were all prayerful people. Well, how did that work out? They built a pipeline. Obama put it right to the, to the 11th hour of that pipeline being completed. And then he said, eh, well, maybe you need to put the brakes on this as he's a lame duck president. So what happens? Trump comes in and they, and, and they go full steam ahead and they, and they make it operational. And, and, and uh, Red Fawn only got out of prison a month or so ago. So we, we took our lumps there. And, you know, and we look second half of the show, I'll talk a little bit more about the Keystone XL pipeline. But for now, I'm, I'm really trying to address how much Native people complained about not being a part of the inauguration. Having said that, there was some hoop dancers that were dancing out in, in the Southwest, you know, as a part of, and it was televised. And so there was, you know, some level of, of celebration in, in, in Indian country. But I think we have to be really, really guarded about how much we get sucked into their, their euphoria and what will end up being a certain level of complicity with either returning to what they believe was the status quo I mean, and we hear it all the time. Well, we gotta, we gotta return to normal. Even as they talk about COVID nineteen, oh yeah, we gotta get back to to our normal lives. Well, I was listening to to somebody today, uh, you know, uh, you know, a black activist saying, "Look, what was normal is what brought us to today. What was normal and what was accepted as normal for not just four years of Trump, eight years of Obama, <laughs> eight years of Bush." Eight years of Clinton. I mean, look, what gets conditioned to be normal and accepted, not just by white people. We get too accepting of some of these things. So what we accept as normal and, and, and not being challenged makes us complicit in, in what they're calling normal. Look, the fact that we're still having debates over things like mascots and we're still having debates over things like environment like like this the, the, i mean the science has all been done on on what uh, what's happening to the planet in terms of climate change but we still have to have this debate i mean everybody's all wrapped up of well was, was the, the election legitimate well look i don't even have that conversation not my election as i said not my circus not my clowns but i'm affected by that circus and i'm affected by these clowns and our people get sucked into that so we have to be careful not to be a part of, of, of their, uh, their sideshows. And as much as I hope that this administration will hear us, we can't assume that everything we said in the past will somehow resonate with them. We've got to continue to be noisy. And, you know, one of the things, and, and I spoke to a bunch of uh, uh, med students today, native med students. And my message to them is we have technology available to us that we never had before. We have the ability to, you know, to take online courses on everything from our language to, you know, to, uh, you know, college courses, but we also can just do research online. We can find out what is true. We can, we can learn about history. 
I mean, it took me two minutes to pull up uh, Geronimo, you know, being paraded out for Theodore Roosevelt's second inauguration in, in 1905. I don't have to have every, all the stuff in, in, on the tip of my tongue, on the, on the front of my memory. It's all available to us, but you have to be willing to look for it. You know, when I, and I, and I say this all the time, when I, when I do events with, with, a, with, with the public, I hear all the time how much, um, especially white people, white educated people, they feel like they're, they've been betrayed by their education. Well, the problem is they're waiting for everything to be served up to them. And th we're not talking about grade school and high school here. Look, by the time you've gotten out of high school, you should be well on your path to critical thinking. But if all you're going to do is be conformed and it's shaped by, by you know, grade school and high school, to no longer question, then you're, yes, that school failed you. But once you get beyond this, this really canned curriculum of high school or grade school and high school, you should be willing to, to educate yourself. And many people are. That's why we're, we're, we are living in incredible times. You know, I, again, I, I am so excited about how strongly Hawaiian people are pushing back against their, the illegal occupation of, of, of their Hawaiian kingdom by the United States. Even though it took place, you know, over 100 years ago. I mean, the fact that, that you have generations now, a couple of generations of Hawaiians that are saying, no, we know now. We know. We, we looked it up. There was no annexation treaty. Everything about what took place. In fact, they got the, the Clinton administration in 1993 to, um, to push for a, an apology resolution from a joint resolution of Congress. I mean, it's just lip service. But, it's, but at least it was acknowledgement. M many Native people have never gotten any, any of that with, with any of the crimes that were committed. Now look, we still, we still got an ongoing battle trying to get medals of honor rescinded from the massacre at Wounded Knee. The fact that we, we, can't, that we even still have to have that conversation gives you an idea of how backward things are. And you know what? We have the internet. We have our computers. We have our smartphones. Which, if we use them properly, they make us smarter. We get to learn what the true history was. But you have to know enough and you have to be ambitious enough to look for it. So when I'm talking to, to young people, I'm saying, don't take what's been spoon-fed for you. Even if I'm the one with the spoon, challenge what, the things that I'm saying. But challenge the things that you're being taught, not just by, in school, but by the media, by, by, by television, by, by the things that you read, you know, everything on the internet. You can fare some of this stuff out for yourself. It's not just about whether Snopes tells you something is true or not. There's also a logic to some of this stuff. Certain things just have to make sense. And, you know, and that was the immediate thing that struck me when I started hearing Native people bitch about not being a part of Biden, Joe Biden's inauguration. Um, it just, I mean, it, it, it just crossed me. And, you know, and, and again, I immediately jumped to, to what they did to Geronimo and how he was used to entertain white people. But it's been, it's been going on a lot. That, it wasn't, that wasn't just a one-off. I mean, it, it would continue. Look, for 14 years of his life in prison, he was being paraded out. And other Native people were. And we're still being paraded out in, the, in that way. And so I think we have, to, we have to be careful. Look, I understand that there are, are, are opportunities that come our way. And some of those opportunities do mean that we have to take our lumps, I guess. 
But if we don't use those opportunities, and look, is, is there an opportunity with, with Deb Haaland being the interior secretary? Absolutely there is. But you know what? If we don't keep the pressure on her, if we don't stay on her, you know, uh, and I mean be tough on her, she's just going to follow the Democratic Party line. She's going to do Joe Biden's bidding. And, and in fact, that's what she's going to do anyway. The question is, can we make sure that our voices are heard because of what we know is the truth? And keep the pressure on her so the Interior Department does right by all these gaming territories that are being screwed by states. I mean, she knows this stuff. I mean, Deb Hallen actually worked in the gaming industry for the Laguna Pueblo. She wasn't a um, in their politics, but she was in their business. She knows what what um, New Mexico was trying to do to uh, to to the casino nations in uh, in New Mexico, and she's and she's very aware of what's taking place in, in Oklahoma. And I don't know if she knows what's going on in New York, because oftentimes this all gets muddled up into into, into party lines, right? So yeah, it's easy for a Democrat to to criticize a Republican governor in Oklahoma, but are you going to criticize a Democratic governor in New York? See, this is what we. This is why we have to keep the pressure on. We we can't let anybody settle into their into their their party line objectives. And and, and look, <laughs> I promise I'm going to talk about the Keystone XL pipeline until the second half. But you know, all I kept hearing out of this out of Joe Biden was that the Keystone XL pipeline is not in the national interest. Yeah, I know Native people are praise, singing the praises of it all, but at the end of the day. It's always going to be about the national interest. And it's going to be about the national interest for the State Department, for the Interior Department, for, you know, the Educational Department. You know, uh, you know all of these, these cabinet you know, secretaries, their job is not to necessarily look out for, uh, you know, certainly not to look out for us. Hell, we're, we're 1% of the population, if that. Our territories are less than 1% of the population. We, our... <laughs> You know, our survival and or, or, or heaven forbid, you know, our thriving <laughs> is not in the U.S. national interest. I mean, the reason for shutting down a pipeline isn't because it goes through native territory. It's because they're worried about aquifers. The reason for, you know, to be concerned about the, uh, the, the Arctic refuge isn't because native people hunt there. It's because they're concerned about their, you know, the environment that they're living in, too. We are the, the first people to be impacted by, by a changing environment. And I say we, I mean indigenous people in general, not just native people, um, but indigenous people in general. And, and, of course, indigenous people and poor people are oftentimes very much aligned. We, you know, we, some of these poverty is, tracks right along racial lines. And the smaller you are in terms of your 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 population, the more insignificant you become when it comes to being weighted out in the national interest of the United States. So this is what we're going to experience here. And the only way that we have success with an incoming administration is to one thing, in the words of uh, Noam Chomsky, we need to yell and yell to the top of our lungs. We need to be heard. We need to be heard. But we also have to convince them that our interests track with the national interests. And because at the end of the day, 
None of these guys, not Deb Haaland, you know, uh, not Kamala Harris and not Joe Biden. None of these guys are going to be concerned about our uh, interests. They're going to be more concerned about theirs. All right. Hey, we're at the bottom of the hour. We'll take a break and uh, we'll get back into it. I promise I'll talk about the Keystone XL pipeline when we come back. This is John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Back then I used to drive off Mason Those cops not used to the faces We got, they would run my plates in We stopped, but I just left work While I restocked, but they see my whip And they see pots on my outfit They think treetop got a head full of steam Like a teapot, better do what he say Oh, you get shot Ooh, who are you? See you like red, must be a pot rule If you went to work, why bring the crew? What you think, black folks don't carpool? Better would have been a crib if my shirt turned blue Keep your hands on the wheel, sir, turn in two I stopped this car, cause you did too dark You know that's a lie, that ain't true It's cause I swear all right. Hey, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Um, hey, before I get back into it, a couple things I want to do. First, I haven't thanked my sponsors in a long time, so I want to give a give a shout out to uh, Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses, uh, Eric White and ERW Enterprises, and the good folks at Grand River Enterprises for helping us do what we do here. But, you know, those aren't the only people who support the show. We have, you know, the occasional donor. Some people throw some money on PayPal or they'll our Patreon subscribers. Um, but we also have a few people who, who just out of the blue will, will drop a check in the mail or in a case that I want to talk about here, we've got a brand new microphone and it's far superior to the stuff we've had in the past. So I want to thank uh, Julian, Travis and Jake. Um, not our Jake. I'll thank him too. And I do thank him for all the work he does. But Julian, Travis and Jake for donating um, uh, Frankly, a microphone that's out of our price range. So uh, if, if you notice, the sound quality is a little improved, and we will we will constantly making adjustments to try to improve what we do here. But when we get a donation like this and we get get support from any of you out there that allow us to, uh, to improve what we're doing here, uh, whether it's through equipment or whether, you know, frankly, it's some, some, sometimes it's content. But uh, whatever you do to help the show, uh, spread it support it uh we we appreciate all of it so i i, I just want to give a shout out to all of you and i want to acknowledge our, our brand new microphone so um let me uh let me get guess get into it uh, but again i want to remind people we are primarily a podcast here but we do put the videos of the show on uh, on facebook and we put videos of the show on our youtube channel which is let's talk native tv so there's a variety of ways you can you can participate in what we're doing here um and of course you can comment um on our um our youtube videos and on facebook and and you can always reach out to us uh, we we appreciate hearing back from from listeners even if you have a critique on something that I've covered. So um, I'm not trying to invite a whole you know, barrage of, of haters, but uh, if you do have something that you, you'd like to bring up, uh, by all means, reach out to us. So uh, we'd, we'd be happy to hear from you. All right, so the Keystone XL pipeline, lots of conversation. Um, it was already becoming publicized that uh, day one, Joe Biden was gonna cancel the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Now, to the extent that the Keystone XL pipeline can be canceled. What they're really talking about is this idea of cross-border because that's when it really becomes a State Department issue, right? That when oil is going to come across the U.S. border um, in, in a pipeline, it, it needs uh, certain permitting. My concern and my, the problem that I have, and it's not to... Look, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize uh, the move to cancel the, the Keystone XL pipeline. I just want to put it in perspective because 
the Keystone XL pipeline was initially originally approved by George W. Bush in the last year of his presidency. So it was in 2008. Um, or would that be 2007, I guess? Whatever, the last year of his presidency. Um, all right. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, but that means it was built primarily during the Obama-Biden administration. Now, in, in 2012, so this has already been, you know, in the, in the works for, for a number of years. In 2012, there was some pullback from the Obama-Biden administration, uh, but it wasn't stopped. There was, you know, there was, you know, again, a, a little bit of a pushback. In 2015, there was finally a determination by the Obama-Biden administration that they did not want to approve this um, this Keystone XL pipeline. Now, I want to distinguish here. I said Keystone XL pipeline. Okay, that's different than there is another pipeline called the Keystone pipeline. This was actually supposed to increase the volume of um, tar sands oil from our Alberta coming through the United States down to the Gulf of Mexico, so it could be processed or refined for export for Canada. So. These pipelines are being pitched as some sort of, in fact, Hillary Clinton, when she was running, uh, you know, against Trump uh, um, the, in, uh, back in 2016, basically, uh, when asked about pipelines, said that she supported federal infrastructure projects. That was her response to pipelines. So she was considering these pipelines federal infrastructure projects. That's fine if they are really about infrastructure for Americans. Um, well, it's still not fine. It's still problematic because where they where they consider these pipelines uh, have to go, which is oftentimes through native territories. But the reality is, the lion's share, if not all of that that Keystone XL pipeline um, uh, bitumen tar sands oil that was going through there, was for Canada to sell to export their their product to China and other countries. I'm not saying the United States didn't receive you know consume some of the oil. But it it was really not about American supply. It wasn't about domestic supply. It was about export. Now, why would it go all the way to the Gulf of Mexico? Well, uh, let me explain. They passed legislation that would make it difficult to build new refineries because of the Clean Air Act. Now, that left the old refineries, all those ones around the Gulf Coast that were still spitting out, uh, choking out uh, uh, pollutants, they were grandfathered in. So when it came to places like Canada, who, who they don't want to build a bunch of dirty refineries. So their solution was not to, to change their, their environmental laws to accommodate how you're going to process the dirtiest oil on the planet for, for resale. We'll just send it to someplace that, that's already grandfathered in. That can that that has permission to pollute, and that's what these refineries in the Gulf in the Gulf Coast were all about. So, the whole Keystone Pipeline and Keystone XL Pipeline was about Canada being able to put their oil, their 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 tar sands oil, um, to to market. Now, for those of you who don't know. Either still don't know or have forgotten what tar sands oil is. Tar sands oil is not um, Jed Clampett shooting at a rabbit and up came the ground, up through the ground came a bubble and crude. No, it is goo. It is like tar that under a layer of 
topsoil that was supported the the boreal forests of uh, of Alberta is a layer of of sand that is caked with this with this tar. So what they do is they mine this this well, one of the ways they extract this is to literally dig up strip out the forest, get rid of all the forest, and then mine this dirty sand where they try to separate the the tar, this bitumen they call it, from the sand. And they do that in a variety of ways which involve superheating, using steam, uh, burning natural gas to do that. So they actually have to pipe in natural gas to separate the the tar from the sand. They create these huge um, lakes, but they call them settling ponds. And these huge lakes, I heard one of the estimates said that the largest man-made dam, earthen dam on the planet, the largest ones exist in Alberta to hold back these, uh, these, these huge reservoirs of water with a layer of oil on the top or a layer of tar on the top. And they, and they, and they essentially skim off as much of that tar as possible. In the meantime, birds are flying in there. They actually try to use cannons and all kinds of other things to, to scare away any wildlife from ever going near these, uh, the, these huge reservoirs of, of these settling ponds. So they separate this stuff. That's one of the ways that they, they do it. So they separate it through this process of, of superheating with steam and they separate this, uh, you know, the, this, tar this goo this bitumen from uh from the sand the dirtiest oil on the planet that's what this is the dirtiest oil on the planet in fact it's it's costly to extract this this stuff so when the price of oil drops below you know 40 50 dollars a barrel this this practice of of, of extracting tar sands oil becomes um marginally profitable um, hell, one of seventy dollars a barrel. It, look, they were, you know, you know, they were at it because it, it was making money, and they could justify it. In fact, they were pulling out so much it was, you know, it was all being bottlenecked because there wasn't enough pipeline capacity, and so they were sending a lot of it uh, in uh, in in rail cars. Now the problem is that this is this is actually more caustic. Um, it, it, it is a much more dangerous product. It's not just like, you know, sweet Brent crude going through a pipeline. It is, it is something that, that has to be, you know, liquefied and it, uh, uh, and the way it behaves when it leaks is worse than oil. So this bitumen, because it's not really crude oil, this bitumen is, is a much more toxic material than, than even basically the leaking of crude oil. Let me explain another one of the other ways that they extract this stuff was to was to uh, drill these holes and then inject superheated wa- uh, water into these holes and try to allow this tar to percolate out of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a terribly wasteful um, energy intensive process to to get the last drops of oil that have been now sequestered in these uh, in the star. By the way, when I say sequestered, that's a, that's an accurate term because this this tar sands the, these tar sands may represent some of the largest sequestration of carbon on the planet ain't sequestered for long not when it's being dug up uh you know for to, to be turned into you know into diesel fuel into you know the gasoline we burn in our cars or, or somebody's burning in their cars so that's what that's what tar sands oil is and this idea of, of a pipeline or a series of pipelines stretching across, you know, from the Canadian border down to the Gulf of Mexico 
is not some tremendous boon for labor, you know, or, you know, you know, or job creation in general because once the pipeline is built there's no more jobs associated with it i mean look there's a certain amount of maintenance but these were not big job creators frankly a lot of the steel that was being used for this stuff was canadian steel in fact many much of the labor was coming from canada too so this wasn't even this like this huge job creator for the united states so it wasn't for u.s domestic supply it wasn't for you know some great job creator the only ones who were profiting from this were those dirty refineries in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, along the Gulf Coast, I should say, and the, uh, the companies extracting this, uh, this dirty oil from, from Alberta. There are many people who are praising this, this move to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. And, you know, frankly, it's probably easier to cancel it when the, when the price of a barrel of oil is as low as it is right now. I gotta believe that if 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 oil were in short supply and it was you know running at you know 70 80 90 dollars a barrel um that this probably wouldn't have happened you know this idea of canceling the pipeline in fact canceling it is about just not allowing the oil to flow because most of this pipeline is built I haven't heard any conversation about pulling up you know, pulling up you know, some of the existing pipeline or addressing the Keystone pipeline, not just the Keystone XL pipeline. The Keystone XL pipeline was a bigger diameter pipe. It was going to haul a lot more oil than the, than the or bitumen than the, than the, uh, the Keystone pipeline. The Keystone pipeline, by the way, was not necessarily designed for bitumen. It was, it was actually most of that, that pipeline network was designed for, for oil. Um, crude oil, not for this this new generation of, of fossil fuel or, or raw material for fossil fuels. So I, I just need to address that. I'm glad it's canceled. I was glad when it was slowed down in, in 2012 and, and when it was canceled in 2015. Of course, as soon as Trump came into office, he immediately said, no, we're going, you know, uh, balls to the wall on this thing. We're going to open up the Keystone XL pipeline. He also completed the, the, the final approvals for the Dakota Access Pipeline. Oh, yeah, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Who approved that? Well, that was done completely during the Obama-Biden administration. The approval, of the, you know, the proposals, the approval, the permitting, all the builds, that all happened during the eight years of, um, of, of Obama-Biden. And only in the 11th hour... When again, when when essentially uh, Obama was a lame duck president, did he begin to um, put the brakes on this project? I mean, it was essentially built. Ninety seven percent of it was built when he finally put started putting the brakes on it, and there was no question. And in fact, Trump advertised the fact that once he became the president, and he was already elected, he was already elected. By the way, he was the you know. President elect is that what they call it? The president elect when when Obama put the brakes on uh, on the Dakota Access Pipeline, and again the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's what led to this huge standoff at Standing Rock. Obama and Biden were responsible for all of that, or or it was on their watch. Look, those aren't the guys out there building the pipeline, but they did nothing to stop it. Or and and so this is this is what you know what we saw and. If you're saying that they couldn't stop it, well, they did in the 11th hour. If they stopped it before it was built, it may not have ever been built. If they, if they had put the brakes on George Bush's approval of the Keystone XL pipeline, 
that may not have ever been built the legs that that were built so when you allow something to continue and and it's a real sneaky way that a lot of these these pipeline companies these oil companies work they they get permits for little sections at a time because they can say oh yeah the environmental impact of this mile isn't going to do anything or this 10 miles or this 20 miles they don't say well, what the environmental impact is going to be of 1500 miles of this stuff they they do it by section so they get an approval and they build it because once they got it built once it's built it's built Oh, it'd be a shame not to use it now, right? So that's what that's what happens with, with all of this. And I think it's really important that we understand the level of complicity that Biden and Obama had in these pipeline builds. And that huge conflict that 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 built up in Standing Rock was over a pipeline that was built entirely. In fact, let me back up. It wasn't it there was a time that that Obama had gone to Standing Rock this historic visit to, to to indian country it happened he happened to pick standing rock because the senior policy advisor which was jody gillette her brother was the chairman at standing rock or the chief or whatever it was the the, the highest elected official in standing rock she was the state the senior policy advisor to obama he goes to her if, if any native territory in in the united states or within the united states had access to the president it was already standing rock so he goes there and does this, this flag day celebration and uses a sitting bull speech um, to make his own speech where he talks about building something for the future of the children, quoting sitting bull the whole time. And what got built? The Dakota Access Pipeline, a pipeline that would put their, their, their river, their water, their land in jeopardy. So all of this stuff got built during Obama-Biden. Now, I'm not holding Biden, you know, specifically responsible for this. He was the vice president. But it's a little hard for me to get really, really, really excited about a change of heart, especially if it's not being treated as that. I, I would feel much better if, if, you know, if somebody like Joe Biden got in there and said, we made a mistake. I know it doesn't really make much difference in the overall scheme of things, but if he said we were wrong to have allowed, uh, have allowed it to, to be built at all, we were wrong to, uh, to, to allow their approvals. Because keep in mind, when these pipelines get built, the Army Corps of Engineers is involved. So it, it does have federal implications. There, there are federal dollars. Sometimes there's, there's subsidies involved. What, what the average American gets out of this stuff is, is minimal, if, if, if anything at all. And who are, who are the people who are placed in jeopardy? Native people. Now, now why, would they, why would they target our territories for these pipelines? Because our lands are oftentimes considered the sacrifice zones. Less people living there you know, will avoid all of the, all of the, the population centers. And the, and the places that are the least populated are native territories. And frankly, the people who have the, have the, the, the smallest voice when it comes to standing up to things, have has always been native people why because we're we're one and especially on our territories less than one percent of the of the u.s population so we are we are the people who are sacrificed and our lands are the sacrifice zones that's and, and that's in the national interest again if you're going to consider what is in the national interest then you do when you know you're going to do something that has a negative impact you figure well, how you can, how can you minimize that negative impact well Let's run these pipelines through the least populated areas and the people and through the areas that, of the people that frankly we care least about. And that's where we come in. So luckily we had a lot of people who stepped up 
native and non-native, who stepped up in uh, to stand up to the Dakota Access Pipeline. It got built anyway. Let's be let's be honest here. All of the ten thousand people uh, you know, who at one time occupied, you know that that area of, of Standing Rock, that. Uh, all of those people there, including the veterans that came there, including you know, everybody, and, and all of those ugly scenes you saw with pepper spray and and beanbag guns and rubber bullets and and all of that, you know, all of that abuse that that people, native people and non-native people, um, uh, had to endure for standing up to this pipeline. It all resulted in a pipeline being built. I haven't heard Joe Biden cancel that one yet. So that's, and again. Canceling it is one thing. Getting rid of these pipelines and and permanently uh, halting their use. Look, you can't talk about reducing climate change if you're going to continue to build out. And this this goes not only for for tar sands oil or Balkan crude, but it also these gas lines, fracking, hydrofracking for uh, for natural gas. You can't. Honestly, tell people that you're you're moving in a direction that's going to reduce climate change. If you're not, and 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 when I hear, even on the natural gas front, and look, my friend Regan down in New York, she's standing up to up up to pipelines that are going right through Brooklyn, and and of course pipelines that are coming from New Jersey, uh, you know, in, into into New York. The problem is we we keep seeing natural gas being cast as this uh, as a cleaner burning fuel. That might be true. Natural gas does burn cleaner than coal, you know, or or other petroleum products. The problem is just like with tar sands oil being the dirtiest oil on the planet and and the amount of carbon footprint that is, that is involved including burning natural gas to uh, to extract it. Natural gas is not clean. Hydrofracking creates a lot of natural gas that goes into the air. And and natural gas methane is is the is much more dangerous as far as a um CO2 emissions than than uh, and the damage that it does to the ozone layer than than uh, than regular just CO2. Okay? Methane is much more dangerous. It's much more destructive. And you can look there are places and we you know i'm we're doing this show from cataragas cataragas the word cataragas or cataragas it it, it is the name of this place references the fact that natural gas uh, comes out of the ground here now the natural gas that that comes out of the ground here and and look there's a place they they got a road called sulfur springs one that's called burning springs you can go to the cataragas creek and there's some places that the natural gas bubbles up you can actually put a bottle over it and you can light light it on fire burning springs because there was at times enough natural gas percolating up through the river that if you lit it the flames would dance across the water so we smell it here but when you that's naturally occurring natural gas coming out of the ground and, and, and it has its impact uh, on, on the environment. But when you start hydrofracking and you push more and more and more of that natural gas out of the ground, out of this, you know, the shale layers of, of, of the ground, not only is this natural gas coming through the pipe, but it's coming out, out elsewhere. And look, we, we saw, you know, some of these, you know, like the, the film Gaslane, where people could turn on their tap and they could light a flame coming out of their faucets. 
And it's all oh, that's just naturally occurring. Well, it isn't naturally occurring. You are basically pushing natural gas in, into into places that it wouldn't normally be be going into the atmosphere. So when I hear about natural gas burning cleaner than coal, yes, that's true, but it doesn't get extracted cleanly. And if we don't move away from fossil fuels, regardless of whether it's natural gas, whether it's coal or whether it's tar sands oil, if we don't really, really work hard to move away from this, then we're, we're creating a, a climate nightmare. I mean, we're, look, we're in the second half or you know, getting into the, the second half of, uh, of January. We have not reached, we have not gone to zero. We, we haven't gone, I don't think, to single digits in, in, in Western New York. So we're already experiencing a warmer December, a warmer January. And every year it's, 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 it's a warmer winter. Look, we've got plenty of snow, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the, the, the climate's not changing. So I'm, I'm concerned. Look, we got a lot of things to worry about. Yes, we've got, you know, racial tensions at an all-time high after four years of Trump, but it's not because race, racism didn't exist already. We've got a, a, a global pandemic that is mutating to become more and more infectious as time goes on. And all this talk about vaccinations, look, they're, they're talking about, va- you know, administering vaccines, a million, a million vaccines a day. At that rate, in the United States alone, it will, it, it will be 2022 before everybody's vaccinated. And we don't even know if the immunity lasts three months, six months. This may be just a, an ever never-ending cycle of trying to play catch-up against uh, against the global pandemic, and of course, it, it affects the economy—an economy that was already strained to the uh, to the max. So we've got global pandemic, we've got climate change, we've got you know <laughs> tensions around the world. It, we've got a, a, an incoming administration that is committed to regime change in places like Venezuela. We've got all this stuff that, that we're still addressing. So, yes, by all means, wave goodbye to Trump. But we've got a lot of stuff in front of us. We've got a lot of stuff in front of us. So, I uh, get, getting back to my original message, I don't want to be a part of celebrating the incoming administration. I want to be a part of holding holding them to account. And I'm you know I don't care to be a part of giving you know kumbaya speeches at at a presidential inauguration i just assume let them praise their leadership let americans praise americans let us hold them to account with the rest of the world well thank you for listening this is let's talk native i'm john kane we'll see you next time yahweh